When you see the guy ready to jump out of that tree, you know good things are not happening to him, right? You know, these trust exercises sometimes end perfectly, but other times they don't go so well. And there's a few reasons for that. Sometimes it's because, well, there are people who like to see other people hurt themselves, right? I mean, they just laugh at that. And so they do it on purpose. More often what happens is people know what they're supposed to do, but something goes wrong there. They can't follow through. Something is just more difficult than they imagined. Or like in the last one, they happen to look away at the wrong moment. And then there are those who just don't get it, right? They don't even know what they're supposed to do. And in some ways, life parallels that a little bit. Uh, there, there are people in our lives that we trust, and we know to have meaningful relationships, we've got to have trust in other people. And sometimes people let us down just on purpose. I think it's rare, but they just don't care. You know, they don't really care about other people and they're going to do their thing. More often, there are people in our lives who, you know, mean the best and are trying to do the best for us, but something happens. There's a problem that comes up and they can't follow through on what they committed to do. And then there are other people that we just know are clueless, right? They just don't get how relationships are supposed to work. Now, sometimes relationships are like that. It's a failure in trust. At other times, relationships build our trust. And maybe you can think of some in your life where relationships have built your ability to trust others. I know, looking back, way back in my life, I've had mentors that helped me understand that and helped me grow in certain ways. A high school teacher who, you know, I had been in a Christian school all the way through Bible class every single day, and I thought I knew a lot, and he began to teach me what I didn't know. And that was a huge lesson for me, and it launched me on a life of trying to understand Scripture in a serious way. And a college professor who taught some of the same things and, and helped me launch into understanding faith in, in a serious way as well. You could name some of those too. Now, here's the truth I'm trying to get at. Our relationships change us. Our relationships change us. Now, we might have some pushback on that. We might think, well, you know what? Other people don't change who I am. I'm the same wherever I am. I'm the same regardless of the people I'm around. I'm always the same guy, same gal. You can count on that. Well, I'm not sure it's that simple. I'm in the middle of a book called Married People, and one of the core truths of this book is this, that marriage is transformational. In other words, if you have committed your life to another person and you're going to spend the rest of your life, decades with that person, you become one flesh with that person, that person will change you. There's just no doubt about it. I mean, if you have that close a relationship, it's going to affect who you are. Now, that could be positive, right? Because your spouse may build you up and encourage you to do things that you wouldn't do without that encouragement. They may help you become a better person. They may help you understand what it means to forgive like Christ forgives. And it may, they may be a person of faith that helps you grow in your faith. And then again, there may be some negatives as well that they sort of build into your life. And, and it hurts you or, or it causes you to be a weaker person. Marriage changes you. Relationships that matter change you. They change who you are. I think that's just unavoidable. The question for us today is, how do we leverage the positive relationships, 
the people who can help us become like the person God wants us to be, a more godly person? How do we leverage those relationships into becoming what God wants us to be? How do we allow those things to lead us in the right direction? Because it's easy to allow the negative relationships to lead us in the wrong direction. We continue in the series that we're calling Self-Destruct Sequence. And we're looking at the story of Saul. Because really when you read that story in 1 Samuel, what you see is a man who launches himself into a sequence of events that destroys his life. It's all about poor decisions. So when we look at Saul, unfortunately we can't say, here's the example of how you ought to live. Instead, we're looking at his story and we're thinking, how do we avoid the mistakes that led to his self-destruction? Well, the story we find today is in 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 17 is a more famous story. It's David and Goliath. You know who won that battle. It wasn't the big guy, the more experienced guy, the more powerful guy, the guy with the best weapons. It was the little guy, the guy that had God on his side. And that event made David a hero. No one else would stand up to Goliath. Goliath came out every day and challenged the people of Israel for someone to come out and and battle him, and no one would do it. Only David came out for the fight and then won. Now, that made David have a reputation as a great warrior in Israel, and it was acknowledged in 1 Samuel 18, verse 6, where we begin. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. So what you have here is a welcome home parade, right? Everybody's coming out to welcome the army with Saul on its head. He's the leader. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now when we first hear that, it sounds like they're saying, David is mightier than Saul. But if you understand Hebrew poetry, and I had to do a good bit of work on this week because I didn't get all this, but the the people who study this and know, uh, Hebrew poetry is based on parallelisms. In other words, you say one thing and then you say it in a different way. And what they're really saying is David and Saul are great warriors. They weren't all that concerned about very large numbers. So thousands and tens of thousands, all that was not the issue. The issue is these men are great in battle. But that's not how Saul heard it. Saul heard it like we might have heard it. He's killed a bunch of people, but David has killed 10,000 more because he's a great warrior. Saul's reaction is recorded in verse 8. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? It's a key line. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. David's best friend is Jonathan, Saul's son. They've developed a bond that seems like very few that we find in Scripture, a friendship that goes throughout their lives and and is a real protection if you read on past this passage you see that at work in their lives david has become a great warrior so has this reputation saul is concerned that david is going to be the next king so you have all that dynamic going on here and saul doesn't want to hear about it and then we see sort of a summation verse 12 saul was afraid of david because the lord was with david but had departed from Saul. 
the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So not only does, does David have a relationship with Jonathan, is he a mighty warrior, but Saul can also see that he's got a relationship with God that he's lost. The next day, David is there in the, in the palace. He's eating with the great warriors who would stand beside Saul. And in the midst of that, Saul became angry and he took his spear and he threw it at David, hoping to pin him against the wall and kill him. Matter of fact, it happened twice. You see, Saul is beginning to, he's beginning to destroy himself. He had this, think about where we are, he had this relationship with Samuel. We can look back at that story, we talked about it several weeks ago. Here's God's spokesman. A prophet from God who proclaimed Saul to be the first king because Saul was head and shoulders above everyone else. More powerful. This is our man who was king. And Samuel tried to lead Saul in the right direction. Again, the poor decisions led Saul down this bad path. And then we've got Jonathan, his son. A great warrior. Reputation that he, he can lead men into battle. He loves his father. And what is Saul doing? He's pushed away Samuel. He'll have nothing to do with him. He's pushed away Jonathan. He's having less and less to do with him. The attachment there is beginning to fall apart because of Saul's actions. And now with David, a man that is described after God's own heart. And yes, he sees him as, as an enemy, a, a potential person who could take his throne. And yet, David is a man that God respects. And what does Saul do? He pushes him away as well. In fact, he hatches this plan. First, we don't get it. He says, David, how would you like to marry my oldest daughter? Sounds like a pretty important thing for the ancient world, and it was. And David says, I, I can't do that. I'm just a shepherd from an unimportant family and an unimportant clan. I don't deserve to be you know, married to the king's oldest daughter. That, that, I just can't do that. So Saul's plan is originally foiled, but then... David and another of Saul's daughters, Michael, fall in love. And Saul hears this. And he offers once again, David, would you like to marry my daughter, Michael? And David says, well, yeah, but I'm from an unimportant family in an unimportant clan. Listen, Saul, I don't even have the money to pay the bride price, the price for marrying the king's daughter. And that's when we see Saul's plan at work because he says, have I got a deal for you? Don't worry about the money. You just go out and kill a hundred Philistines and I'll let you marry my daughter. Because you see, Saul was convinced that if David went out to battle the Philistines and to kill a hundred of them, he himself would be killed in battle and Saul would be done with this David wouldn't be in the picture anymore. Problem solved. But what did David do? He went out and killed not 100, but 200 Philistines. So here's Saul. And it feels like he's being squeezed into this circle. He's pushed Samuel away, who could have given him the word from God. He's pushed his son Jonathan away, who was allegiant to him and a great leader that, that Saul depended on. He's pushed away, and here's David, now friends with Samuel, his son-in-law, because he's married to Michael, and Saul's afraid heir to the throne. But yet, 
a man who always respected Saul. That's the strange thing. If you look at chapter 19 and then on through the story, David always respects the office of the king. Saul is still God's anointed. So he defers to Saul, turns to Saul, and yet Saul continues to push him away. If you read chapter 19, you see that Jonathan pleads with his father to sort of abandon this quest to have David killed. Saul agrees originally and then turns from that and he's ready to kill David again. Saul's pushing away everyone that could lead him down the right path. Everyone who has a godly influence, Saul has pushed away and so he's left alone. And there's the lesson that I want us to learn. Allow the right people to influence you. You see, it's a negative lesson. Saul pushed all the right people away. And so his, his life descends into to more and more problems. I mean, this story is a sad story, and it ends with a terrible ending because Saul has made these poor decisions and now pushed everyone away who might have brought him back to the right path. So what do we learn? Allow the right people to influence you. And we have to ask the question, who is influencing me? Who's making a difference in my life? And, and I want us to think about three ways to apply this. And the first has to do with that. Take note of who is influencing you. Take note of who's influencing you. So, for example, if you have a decision to make, if, if you've got an important problem that you're grappling with, who is it that you go to? Who do you invite to speak into your life? Whose wisdom do you seek out? Because that person is influencing you. Take note of the people who are influencing you. The people in your life, who are you becoming more and more like? Whose viewpoints are you adopting? Whose wisdom seems the most helpful? Because those are the people who are influencing you. And maybe they're the right people. Maybe they're people who are taking you down a godly path, or maybe, maybe you, like Saul, have pushed some of those godly people away and you've been listening to the wrong people. And you can see your life going in the wrong direction. Or maybe you just think you're sort of rocking along. You know, we can be out in the middle of a large body of water in a boat, and it feels like we're going nowhere. But the truth is, it's not the way it works. We drift. We're always going in a direction. Is your life drifting? because you don't have the right influences. Don't let that happen. So first, take note of who's influencing you. Second, open your life to people who know God. Open your life to people who know God. And you say, well, how do I do that? I mean, I don't even know for sure who I should be talking to. Well, there's people in this room. This church is filled with people who love Jesus Christ, who are sold out to serving Him, who know God, who have a relationship with God. And, and part of the mission there is to share that. And so there are people to seek out, even in our church. And so you might see people in our church and you think, man, I, they've got faith together. I mean, they're not perfect people. Nobody is, but that's the real deal. Those are the people you need to seek out. Those are the people when you've got trouble, when you've got a question, when you've got a problem, when you're trying to make a decision, you need to seek the wisdom from those people. Because they'll help you down that godly path. 
Those are the people, if you develop a relationship with them, are going to show you what it means to follow Jesus. Now, the third one is a balance to the first two. And at first it sounds like maybe I'm going in the wrong direction, that I'm backing up from this, but it's this. Don't isolate yourself from people who don't know Jesus. What am I talking about? Haven't I been saying surround yourself with the right people? Haven't I been saying make sure the right people are influencing you? Absolutely. But here's one of those things that I think we as Christians are called to to hold in a delicate balance, a tension that we can't ever really resolve because we're called to be godly people and our relationships change us. But our problem is that we live in a world that that's full of struggles, isn't it? I mean, there's agendas that we think are just incorrect. There, there are forces at work that we think could bring harm to people and to nations. And, and, and we just, you know, our tendency is when we see all that negativity, all that potential danger, we just want to sort of hunker down. We want to come together. And if, we, if we get everybody together, we'll keep each other safe and, and we'll surround ourselves with just these good people. And the problem with that is, There's a whole world out there that needs Jesus. And if the only people I know and the only people I ever have contact with are Christians, how am I going to fulfill the mission that God has given us? You see, we have to hold it in balance. Those can't be the people who influence me, who make me into the person that that I'm going to become. I've got to depend on those godly people, but I can't abandon the world because I'm trying to keep myself over here. It's hard stuff. It's a difficult balance for us to maintain. The the balance between becoming the right person and bringing people to Jesus. And yet it's one of those things that we're never done with. We don't get to finish that job. Because we're always attempting to become the person God wants us to be, and yet we're always trying to fulfill the mission that we've been given. So, if, if you had to plot a course, and we can't do this with life because it's t- too full of variety, but if you had to plot a course, what would your life look like right now? Would it be that you're, you're increasingly becoming more like Jesus? Your relationship with God is, is deepening and growing. Or you sort of feels like you're drifting along. Or maybe you've influen- been influenced to, to pull away from Christ. Where are you on that? I can tell you the people that you allow to influence you will have a dramatic effect on what that line looks like. Our relationships change us. And we have to allow the right people to influence the direction of our lives. Let's pray together. God, give us the courage to reject the path that Saul took. Pushing away all the people who could have led him in the right direction. Help us to be humble enough to recognize we don't have it figured out. Humble enough to seek out people who can help us. Humble enough to take correction when it's needed. And God, help us to be the kind of people who lead others to a deeper relationship with you. We pray it in Jesus' name.
The most important step in a relationship with Jesus Christ is to say, hey, I'm going to put my faith in Christ and I'm going to be baptized into Him. Maybe you're today ready to be baptized into Him and we'd love to know about that. Or as a baptized believer, ready to be a member of this church. If you've made either one of those decisions, let us know. Come forward as we stand and sing our invitation. Let's stand together.